you'll never do right, nor God will never prosper you until you give him his due, the king his due, that is my successors, and the people their due. And he even says, I'm as much for them as any of you. Hello and welcome to this bonus and extra episode of the Aspects of History podcast. I'm continuing my chat with Mark Turnbull on the execution of Charles I. So if you've not heard part one, which was on the trial, I recommend you go back and listen to that. The execution of Charles I was the only time we've chopped off the head of our king. Now if you ask me, I actually think it was a good thing ultimately, because it reminded the monarchy that they rule only by consent. So any tyrannical leanings that Charles III might have, well, he just has to look at what happened to his namesake. But with that said, Charles I received his sentence with dignity and nobility. We all know that he wore two shirts on that cold January morning so as not to shiver and look afraid. But with Mark Turnbull, we dig a bit deeper and learn what happened in the lead up to the chop, the execution itself, as well as its legacy through history. Coming up, I've got Saul David on the Zulu War, Gary Sheffield on the First World War, John Sales on 18th century Scotland and America, and Tom Petch on the SAS. Please do subscribe if you can, and if you can rate or review, I'd be very grateful. I do hope you enjoy my chat with Mark Turnbull on the execution of Charles I. So, Mark, welcome back to the podcast. This is our two-parter on the trial and the execution of Charles I, which took place in January 1649. So we are uh, at the anniversary. And I wanted to, um, for listeners who've not heard the first part, I do recommend you go back and listen to that because it deals with the background behind how Charles was brought to trial and it describes that we talk about the trial itself the trial itself and charles's behavior in it cromwell's behavior in it and we've reached the end of the trial the court does not hear from refuses to hear charles and they establish that he is guilty of treason so we're going to pick things up now um we're in the aftermath the guilt the guilty verdict has been given what um what happens next yeah so so behind the scenes the guilty verdict's given uh now it's a case of um the, the punishment and uh the, the the commissioners that are handpicked to try charles um there is a, a half nearly half of them don't turn up um, and that list is headed by general fairfax who completely disassociates himself from the the court and uh, one famous anecdote is obviously his wife in the in the public gallery. Uh, when his name's called out, she says he's got more wit than to be here. Um, and uh, so you've got only half of the commissioners present, really. Um, it varies very slightly day to day. The the death warrant, when it's being signed and when when they're looking to proceed to execution, um, it's at that moment behind the scenes that. I wish I was a fly in the wall because uh, the, the, there must have been so many discussions, debates, arguments, you know, going on. Uh, and amongst it all, there's this uh, really visual 
anecdote of Cromwell and Henry Martin. And Henry Martin is a, an absolute Republican. Um, he can't stand Charles. Uh, that stems back decades. Um, Charles had once called him a whoremaster um, and asked him to get out of uh, the, the same area that he was in um, because Henry Martin was a, um, a, a bit of a womanizer and, and drinker. And uh, so, so Cromwell and Martin are joking together. They're flicking ink at each other um, as the the signing of the death warrant goes on. And uh, they're flicking ink. Yeah. So, well, as in um, for fun. Yeah, for for fun, just flicking ink at each other. You know, laughing, carrying on. Which it's such. It is such a strange thing to happen at that pivotal point in proceedings i mean i've heard it suggested that cromwell was just anxious um but you know as a politically savvy leader you know an intelligent man who knew when to associate himself and when not i i, I don't know it's a bit strong to suggest that he was just anxious for, for my part I, I i think perhaps relief I, I think this must have been a very tense and stressful moment for everybody involved the king the prosecution bradshaw cromwell perhaps it was relief that um they'd got to this point now um and that signatures were being applied to the death warrant you know a hope that the end was in sight they would remove the king but yeah i mean if we turn the tables and say that charles flicked ink at somebody when he was signing the death warrant of one of his enemies during his personal uh, rule I'm sure nobody or you know would perhaps suggest that it was Charles's anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're not buying that at all. I I I see that too. I mean Cromwell does not strike me as uh we've had um we've had Miranda Mallins talking about Cromwell and Paul Lay talking about the Cromwell and the Cromwell Lay described the the Cromwell Lay writes about is is not one that to me would um, be anxious. Uh, he, he always seems to know exactly what he wanted to, to do. In, listeners may be familiar with the film Cromwell, um, starring Richard Harris as Oliver Cromwell. And in that scene, in, in the scene where uh, the warrant, the death warrant is signed, Cromwell is effectively going around, um, man, uh, not not forcing people to sign, but he's 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 telling them you will sign. Well, I guess it is forcing. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's no doubt. Do you think there's truth in that? I, th I think there's truth that he he mustered waivers. Yeah. Whether or not that involved forcibly signing, you know, whether it, you know, it involved an altercation or not, you know, I don't think anyone will know, you know, because there'll, there'll be no record of that. But yes, I, I, th I think, you know, if it wasn't for his strength of character, um, seen it through and in, in, you know maybe because Cromwell at the end of the day at that point firmly believed this was God's will you know so so for Cromwell he he is God's instrument at seeing this through and uh, he'll have no stock for waverers um, in, in that regard you know again Fairfax is not there you know people look to him for leadership um, was that a mistake? Do you think Fairfax removing himself? I mean, I guess for um, his own safety's sake, uh, it was wise. But had he been there, do you think the um, death warrants would have been signed? Yeah, because I, I think you, you can see even when Fairfax was appointed as general that um, 
he wasn't he wasn't as strong a character as Cromwell and uh, a lot of the 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 actions that led up to the trial and the the execution itself Fairfax was against them he was against the purge but eventually he had to give way you know he he was in almost as impossible a situation as the king you know when we talk about plead or not Fairfax could either be involved or not but really whatever way he went the outcome wouldn't change I think and I think he knew that and you know if he retained his position attended and then objected publicly uh, that could bring about a, a rupture in uh, the army and the commissioners which could cause another war and I think for Fairfax that took precedence over the king's life uh, you know that that and perhaps over his own life as well you know I think he thought um, as general I'll have to just absent myself which would then give the message that I'm not in agreement but it allows everything to proceed he's not going to be a blocker or an obstacle and and so when because I think that the guilty verdicts 27th of January so the, the court had lasted a week um, from the 20th to the 27th uh, when when are the death warrants signed what date what date are they signed and when are the, when is that publicized so that the people are aware that their king is gonna have his head chopped off yeah so so there is a lot of debate about when the, the the warrant was signed because you know i've read um blogs um uh, and information by um i think it was one of the keepers of the warrant in in the the archives that when, when they've examined the writing and the parchment itself it's it's got some amendments so it suggests that perhaps it was signed by some of the commissioners and then it was passed to the rest so was there was there a rupture there you know was there a need to get people back on or was it just literally they, they wanted to authorize by getting the, the leaders signed and sealed and then they could pass it to others that weren't perhaps present yeah so a bit of a tricky one to know precisely when it was signed it seems to be over a, a period of a couple of days um and then as for the people finding out i mean it all moved very very quickly i'm not sure that any actual formal notification was given um, I think obviously people knew that he'd been found guilty and, and that the penalty had been given in the court. So I think it was clear that it was going to happen, but nobody expected it to happen so quick. Um, you've got even the, the, the Duchess sending over ambassadors to Parliament to negotiate for a reprieve just for a temporary respite so that they can negotiate. And, and everybody around is shocked when the final moment happens. You know, the royal family are shocked. Some of Charles's lead and supporters are utterly devastated to find out that it's actually happened and it's happened so quick. And I think Parliament know, or, or those commissioners in the room, they know if they do not proceed quickly, then the longer it goes on, the longer unrest builds, the longer pe that shock will wear off, uh, that inertia. Um, other foreign uh, heads of state will be more interested in rescue attempts. It is a hugely shocking event, really, when one thinks about it. Even, you know, even 300 odd years later, um, 350 odd years later, it, it, it seems like a shocking event. When the scaffold is being constructed and preparations are being made, he's, it, 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 the execution takes place in Whitehall, doesn't it? 
It does, yeah, yeah. So um, just outside of Whitehall Palace, so the banqueting house itself, there's a scaffold uh, built adjoining that. And do they start building that um, during the trial, or are they? they... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that was built um, after the uh, sentence was passed. Okay, so they they knock that up pretty quickly um, yeah. within, a, within a few days. But the the crowd and and the the execution is a is a very moving moment. And Charles again, as I mentioned right at the beginning of part one, where this really was Charles's finest hour, um, the, the trial and execution. And in the execution itself, could you just describe the moments before he is? he comes out onto the um, scaffolding and also the crowd themselves because they weren't baying for blood were they no so so the 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 crowd themselves are held back so i mean it's very unlikely that the crowd could see much or hear much um they were held back from the scaffold by soldiers by cavalry that the area around whitehall and that banqueting house was enclosed um, you know, it, it had to gate gate at either end as well. So very limited. The 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 authorities made sure that shops remained open. They wanted as less um, fuss as possible, just more distractions. As I say, a post was stopped. Streets were uh, plugged with soldiers. Fairfax himself couldn't even move around London to get to Parliament to intervene on that day. Um, so he he was attempting to get to MPs. His own army, they were blocking the streets, which to me suggests it hints at least at a coup. It hints at least that Cromwell and the other army leaders were aware that Fairfax had some plan to intervene. And whatever happened, the Dutch ambassadors that went with Fairfax just noted that they were unable to get to Parliament. Now, if you've got your general with some Dutch ambassadors trying to get to the Houses of Parliament to discuss with MPs, for his own troops to block that, it has to be more than just, oh, I couldn't actually shimmy past the hundred men that were stationed in that street. I couldn't actually get there. There was a traffic jam. You know, it's not that. This is. This seems to be some sort of deliberate act to stop Fairfax. From, from following through. And, and w- there was a very real um, concern that Charles could be sprung, wasn't there? Yeah, I, th- I think that yeah, was... Henrietta Maria um, in Leander de Lisle's new book describes um, her, uh, Henrietta Maria originally receiving a message that he had escaped. Yeah, I, I, I think that rumours and different things, yeah, I, I think Charles knew that... Um, an escape would be nigh and impossible, impossible, um, given the, the, the security. Yeah. What you just described. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think on the inside, he could see that on the outside that there would always be that hope, you know, surely somebody will not let this happen. Somebody will act. And so we get to the moment where he is, he is called to be executed. What, what are, what are his last moments like? So quite a quite a, a tense time for Charles. So he's escorted. Um, you know, he gets up. He's uh, not cracking jokes. No, absolutely not. But again, behaves impeccably with decorum. Uh, courageous. You know, let's face it, he behaved very courageously. 
um, walks from St. James's Palace um, under guard. You know, he's got, he's got by some accounts, a, a man running up alongside him, staring at him, uh, it, trying to intimidate him. The, the, the bishop sees him off. He gets to Whitehall Palace. Uh, and at that point, he's then left. So he spends around four hours in a room with Bishop Juxon and uh, Herbert, the attendant that Parliament had assigned him for a little while. He was his sole uh, attendant before Juxon. He spends hours waiting to find out what's happened. He's praying, he's meditating. Um, it gets to the point where Juxon says, well, you, might, you must eat something, otherwise there's a chance that you could end up uh, fainting through hunger, um, especially with the cold. And uh, Charles reluctantly uh, agrees to take some bread and wine. Yeah, so he, he agreed to take just a little bit of bread, some wine, uh, just to fortify himself. And it's during that four hours, that hiatus in events, where Charles must have been sitting in this room, uh, desperately trying to keep it together, um, when Fairfax is attempting to get to MPs. It's potentially when MPs are debating, what are we going to do to make sure that the proclamation of a new king doesn't occur around the kingdom uh, messengers are dispatched to the various compass points you know to to, to warn people do not proclaim any yeah, new and, and that's interesting because as we've seen with the death of uh, elizabeth ii it's a procedure that is well known to as you say all the all the points of, of the kingdom that's just what happens it uh, it's like a, a moving machine that just starts the moment that the the monarch is the sovereign dies that, that's right, yeah. And um, they might vote that that's now uh, illegal, but I think in, in practice, the need to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, you've got all of this going on. And, and uh, in the end, when someone finally does knock on the door, um, you've got Juxon and Herbert uh, fall to their knees, they're crying. Charles can't cope with this. Um, you know, the, the night before the execution, he's seen his children two days before um his youngest two yeah he's seen we should we should mention that charles uh his his elder children i mean in particular charles the prince of wales is in paris that that's right yeah so um so the children he meets is henry and elizabeth so henry is uh, the second youngest he meets them and takes his leave of them um it's a extremely emotional scene Elizabeth records this. She doesn't forget it. Elizabeth 13, Henry's eight. Um, they come into the room. Charles it co ends up comforting Elizabeth. She can't. Uh, she, she's unable to hold back her tears. He, he tries to talk to them to just reinforce a few things. He wants them to carry him to get a message back to Henrietta to say that his thoughts had never strayed from her. The love is the same to the last He's instructing the two children to forgive his enemies as he has done. For Henry, he, he takes him on his knee and says, don't be made a king by them while your brothers do live. Uh, Henry says he'll be torn to pieces first, which satisfies Charles. And um, Elizabeth throughout this is sobbing. So, so there's a concern that Henry might become a puppet monarch. Yeah, and that was... Uh, it had been touted even during Charles's captivity by some people that perhaps just set Henry up. He could be moulded and displace Charles. 
and Charles is telling them, look, it's a glorious death that I'm going to die. Um, it's for the laws and liberties of the land and for maintaining the Protestant religion. Um, so he's getting these messages across. At that point, they go to leave and uh, daughter can't take. She bursts into tears. They run back. They embrace again. And as they are ushered out, that moment becomes too much and Charles collapses. Uh, he's taken to his bed. Um, he can't stand. His knees have gone. Um, and I think at that point, that's when Charles realises that he must bounce back from this moment if he is going to face his end with dignity. Um, and in view of this um, moment with, with his children and the effect it had on him, Charles takes an orange studded with cloves uh, in his pocket that morning. Um, so just in case he needs the assistance of a sharp scent. So I think this is how this is how much Charles understood the the criticality of his final moments um, and, and how much he wanted to make sure that that um, that went according to his plan and, and the double shirt. So wearing two shirts. So that he didn't appear this, is, this is the thing that he is most well known for in the uh, the execution. The, 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 he doesn't want to shiver, obviously, because it's a January day. It's cold. He doesn't want the shivers to be confused as as fear. Yes, yeah, that's that's it. Um, he knows that anything like that could be misconstrued. Um, so he, it has to be an impeccable performance. It's another mask. You know, he's he's in a court mask again, making sure his performance is impeccable. And so, as you've mentioned, the 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 crowds coming to watch the execution are not actually that close up, are they? To the no. to the events. Um, no. And so how is he? Is it an axe? Is it a sword? Um yeah, so it's an axe. What, what's the actual mechanics of of? I, I mean, it's the most gruesome way way to go, I suppose. But um, what what are the mechanics of of how the execution actually happened? Um, so it's an axe. It's your typical executioner axe, so very big. Um, if it's wielded correctly, it should be a, a you know a short, sharp end. Um, I mean, his grandmother Mary Queen of Scots had a terrible time of it. You know, hacking away. Um, is this because you know, that some of her hair got in the way and caused trouble? Yeah, and I think when they lifted the head up at the end, she had a wig, and then the head dropped because the wig, you know, dis, you know, detached. Um, dear, oh dear, this I, is I've read that stuff, before. About... <laughs> so, I mean, for, for, for Charles, you know, the moment he enters the scaffold, one of the things that he makes a beeline for is the axe. Um, he wants to make sure that it looks in good shape that nobody's going to interfere with it he's making speeches from the scaffold and he keeps turning around to the axe and saying hurt not the axe that might hurt me gruesome sight you know the staples in the floorboards um to hold him down pin him down if he should struggle the the block itself is extremely small um so it, it means that he'll have to lie down on his lie down flat so he's not on his knees. He's lying down flat in lying down flat crucifix um, position. Yeah. Yeah. So right. nobody can see the, the blow that the gruesome sight of it isn't going to generate 
a rush of sympathy. You know, people can't see the act. If they could, perhaps, you know, that would be an image that would stick with people for so long. They would think, gosh, didn't he be behave so admirably and so courageously? Well, they can't see how he's behaving. He's out of sight. And he knows that. And that's why he does speak to a lot of people around the scaffold to make sure that his words are taken back. There's people making notes. What, what are his final words? Is there anything of particular note that, that, um, that he says? Yeah. Um, so, so he does make reference to uh, the Earl of Strafford, which was his principal minister back in the early 1640s. Strafford's executed in 41. Uh, and Charles forever blames himself. So Charles eventually signs his death warrant uh, because there's crowds marauding around the palace, threatening his safety, his family's safety. Uh, he can't get anything through government because his opponents are blocking everything for Strafford's life. He signs the warrant. Uh, Strafford's executed. He makes reference on the scaffold, saying one unjust sentence that I put forward is now getting uh, repaid on me um he he tells he says again that he didn't start the war um that he he is defending the church and the government and uh, people's liberties and uh, he asks people to forgive his enemies again just as he's done with his children he makes that clear he even gives a little bit of advice to the new regime as it were in terms of you'll never do right, nor God will never prosper you until you give him his due, the king his due, that is my successors, and the people their due. And he even says, I'm as much for them as any of you. So that's him continuing that theme from the trial, that he's standing for the people's liberties. Um, he then just clarifies that he dies a Protestant, you know, to head off any rumours there. Um, he, he reminds people he did not have to be on the scaffold being put to death. He says if he'd submitted to an arbitrary way where the laws were changed according to the power of the sword, he, there was no need for his death. But that's what he's saying. He isn't going to, to betray those principles. He isn't going to betray God. A subject and a sovereign are clean different things, he says, which, again, in, in his opinion, what level of demands is preposterous. The common man or woman shouldn't have a say in government. It's not their place. The divine right of kings, but that was foremost in his mind. Yeah. But we, you know, we see um, Fairfax, Cromwell and Ireton, though, in Putney debates, saying the same thing, that it would be anarchy to have the common man or woman. They didn't say a woman. Um, but the, the common man at that point, what the levelers were pushing, Cromwell says, that would be anarchy. You can't just have a vote in government because you breathe. You have to have some sort of holding in the kingdom. And so Charles really is want, wants to go out a martyr, ultimately. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and he's actually he's successful in that, uh, at the very least, for his descendants. I mean, after this, yeah. all monarchs are keen to ensure that, well, certainly they don't end up like Charles, but it's a, a hugely powerful moment for the royal family. Absolutely. And I think, you know, back when he was in captivity, what he was willing to negotiate away always had that clause that um, his powers or the monarch's powers would be re-established when handed to his son so again it was almost like he he was becoming a pariah you know he was becoming a blocker to the peace of the kingdom 
perhaps he realized that himself um, for whatever reason, you know, he's not going to think that he's to blame, but he's going to think for whatever reason, I've done something that's got me to this point. Um, if I can just protect those powers and hand them on to, to Charles, um, then job well done. That That's as much as I can hope for at this point. And, and you're right, you know, it was a, it was a, an ultimate success. And so when the news that um, he's had his head chopped off uh, reaches, do we know, Charles II, do we know, uh, because from that moment he becomes Charles II, even if he's not, he's not crowned for another 11 years. Yeah. What does Charles, um, what's the reaction of Charles to, to the to learning of his father's death? So that there's absolute shock across the board. So Charles wrote to the Queen uh, Regent of France um, of a horrid and deadly blow. Um, King Charles I, close friend from, from uh, younger years, wrote that it was a sadder spectacle than ever we thought would grow out of it. James, so Charles's uh, you know, second son, James, Duke of York, he, he said what impression that made both upon the Queen and himself uh, may be more easily, easily imagined than expressed. Um, and, and the Queen just couldn't you know, speak. She was struck uh, silent for, for a long, long time. Um, and, and Hyde, Edward Hyde, said it was an unspeakable and fatal loss. Um, everybody uh, in exile were so depressed under the heavy weight of affliction that they've scarce recovered motion or breath. It's powerful stuff. And and how about um, the people? Is there any um, evidence that there was displeasure with what happened? There, there is, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, some, some clergymen wrote little entries in their parish records, for example, uh, you know, after the event um, and perhaps pre-restoration, just saying this is the anniversary of the murder of the king, you know, that sort of thing, kind of keeping that sort of writing for posterity in a way um but you've you, you know you've got you've, you've got the army then parading through london after the execution telling people if you disagree with the execution or if you make your views known you will forfeit your own life as well so you know there was a clear message um that this is there's no protest here you either shut up or you face um justice <laughs> Understood. Right. So so then we're we in the aftermath of the death of the king. We then enter the interregnum, don't we? Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to know for those those men who signed the death warrant. Um, and I think that's a good way to conclude it, really. Uh, and then we can talk a little bit actually about the legacy. But um, but but for the for those men who signed the death warrant, what happened to them? Yeah, so, so the men that signed the death warrant, um, a, a lot of them that actually signed the warrant uh, were um, leaders, um, people of influence that in the trial that were invested in the trial and execution. Um, a lot of them went on to become principal actors in, in what followed. They, they went on to become members of the, the Council of State. So what followed was a faceless group 
of those leaders took executive power, really. I mean, you know, they had a lot of power. The rump parliament and the MPs, you know, they weren't left with that much power. It was all handled by this executive group. Um, and then over the years that followed, I mean, gradually the, there were some members of the group that fractured away, you know, Cromwell's fallen out with different people like Lord Grey of Groby, um, you know, who was instrumental in getting it, getting the, the, the trial passed through Parliament. In the end, the, the people that signed the warrant, anyone that was alive at the restoration were told that they were exempt from the act of oblivion because uh, the, the, the regicides, as they called them, you know, the, Charles II couldn't really spare them. As much as we, we think, yeah, that's terrible, you know, that he, he executed them. When you think about it, he's returned to the throne, passed an act of oblivion. But what he's saying is, my father was executed. I cannot, as a, a king who wishes to maintain some sort of dignity and power, pardon everybody. Somebody yeah. has to pay the can't price. can't go, let's forgive and forget. It's, yeah. It's effectively, because his position is that the, his father's been murdered. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And, and then the other aspect of this is, so anyone that did um, die before the restoration, so Cromwell, Bradshaw, um, they were dug up and executed publicly. And, uh, you know, their corpses were, were hung, drawn and quartered. And, and again, you know, a gruesome act. But again, symbolic, it's almost as if, right, so what do we do here? Do we have mass uh, slaughter of all of the opponents? do we dig a few bodies up to symbolically say these are dead but they're not going to get away with it and all of the others that signed the warrant aren't not everybody that signed the warrant did die you know there were some that made peace or evaded authorities uh, um, two of whom robert harris has written about that's right yeah yeah great stuff okay so i just before we finish then let's just talk a little bit about the legacy um of the execution of charles the first because i mean the french it took them another hundred years to, to execute their, their king is it is it a sign of progress for a european country to chop the head off of the king um i think it was a sign that um that england had perhaps moved beyond you know, moved on and, and, and was was looking for a different approach to government, a different balance of government, um, willing to try new things. So, yeah, I, I think it was ahead of its time. You know, some of the levelers demands, even though they weren't uh, all implemented, you know, a few of them did get implemented, but it, perhaps it did pave the way for it. It either, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, it could have reduced another bloody conflict a prolonged or an even longer conflict and just sobered people up to think well actually we've seen the civil war we don't want another we all understand that we've lost people and that it was a, a bloody time let's see if we can see out our differences in other ways than than, than bloodshed and and perhaps it did avoid perhaps it did give the hanoverians that uh, respite from from a, from another revolution at the time of the French Revolution. Thank you very very much. It's been it's been it's been a real education and a treat, and it's actually quite much of it is is very moving. And it's Charles. I think we've mentioned this a few times. It really is Charles the First, who I don't think by any stretch one could describe him as a a huge success as a king. But I think his trial and his execution did show that 
he had some good sides to him. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's too. I think that's the thing that I found in in researching a biography of him that, that he is so two dimensional. It's unbelievable. Um, he wasn't a murderer, and he's not a martyr. Well, he you know you could say he was a martyr, but he certainly you know it's not as simple as that. You know, uh, he's not guilty of murder, and he's not absolutely innocent. Was he a good king? I think on the one hand you could say that uh, he was a bad king because he ended losing ended up losing his head that he presided over a civil war but i think it's more complex than that i think would would that war have been unavoidable would it have come at any rate regardless of who was there but charles i, I do feel that that leading opponents had become sick of um the status quo at james the sixth and first death and whoever took over at that point had to do something different and the fact that Charles was a continuation of that government, that regime, the traditions, the beliefs, people weren't willing to go for another lifetime uh, without challenging that. So the question is, if Henry or Elizabeth had succeeded, would they have given up prerogative power freely or would they have made a stand against it? How would they have dealt with finances? You know, all of these problems they would have had to deal with, which Charles tried um, yeah, so it, it makes it tricky to say, was he a good or a bad king? Ultimately bad if you say that it took us to civil war. But I think there's a lot of deeper questions that we can ask. What were his motives? Uh, was he, because uh, he was an idealist, did he have genuinely uh, good motives? Was he too good? I'll tell you an interesting point, um, Ollie. So we visited the Tower of London. Uh, and as a in the gift shop, there was some chocolates. I'm not sure you've seen them because they've been around a while. I think they've got six monarchs uh, and famous paintings on the back of the chocolates. They've got a bit of information about them. And there's Charles I, Charles II, Victoria, Elizabeth I, Henry VIII. And I, out of interest, I thought, right, let's take Henry VIII and Charles I. Let's have a look and see what's actually written on the back, you know, about them. And typically it says Charles was just had no time for parliaments was executed by his people and that's the failure king coming in but for henry uh it's said that he was a complete renaissance prince yes cruel could be cruel and brutal for example his wives and ministers however and putting down rebellions however his rule was effective now the thing is here, if Henry had perhaps not, if Charles had been as ruthless as Henry, would we say Charles is a field king or would he be a true Renaissance prince? If Henry wasn't ruthless and he was more like Charles and uh, he didn't execute some of the leaders of the pilgrimage of Greece, the rebellion in his reign, um, would we say that he was a field king? <laughs> you know what I mean? Very easy yeah, to sort it, of swap the rules around isn't it it sounds like the henry the eighth society has been writing the uh, chocolate at the back of the um, <laughs> mark mark it's yeah. it, it's a good it's a good a good way to end it posing that question and 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 as you say i, I completely appreciate that things are all often a lot more complicated and nuanced than just whether he was a good or a bad king um, but yeah. it's been fascinating to hear all about it uh, and thank you thanks so i know it's been fascinating talking about it you know thanks thanks for for having us on the podcast again thoroughly enjoyed it
Thanks so much for listening. On Saturday, I welcome back Saul David to talk about his great book, Zulu, all on the Zulu war. Plenty more great chats to come, so please do subscribe and rate and review if you can. And in the meantime, thank you and good night.